America has a problem, a very American problem. It's, well, Americans. So I was a college kid working on my MBA, um, April 19, 1995, on my way out the door that morning, and watched the patio doors on my patio go out and come back in by the force of the explosion, probably about 10 miles north. Felt the impact greatly.、Uh, kind of went back to my living room area and turned the television on just to see, like, what in the world was that? Didn't know it was a bombing. I think a lot of people thought it was a gas explosion, but the well-trained. Law enforcement officers who had had bomb training knew almost instantly that this was not a gas explosion. This was a a bomb. This was done on purpose by somebody. On April nineteenth, nineteen ninety five, workers at the Alfred P. Murrah Federal Building in Oklahoma City showed up for work on a Wednesday. They were just doing office stuff, maybe finishing their first cup of coffee at nine ish in the morning. These were. Moms and dads and coaches and Sunday school teachers and、uh, baseball coaches and little league coaches—they were people you would recognize it in the church pew or the baseball stands or the basketball stands. Yeah, it's Oklahoma City. So what happened? Two army buddies had worked on building a large bomb in the back of a rider truck and back of a rental truck, and、uh, they had concocted a large four thousand pound. Bomb in the back of that truck, and they,、uh, one of those, Timothy Bay, the perpetrator, drove the truck and parked it in front of the Alfred P. Murrah Federal Building, detonated the bomb, ran to his getaway car, and headed north. About an hour later, he was arrested for carrying a gun and having no tag, and、uh, the story began to unfold from there. But in the meantime, after detonating that bomb, he killed 168 people, 19 who were small children, and Injured hundreds of others in what remains the worst domestic terrorist attack on American soil. The Murrah Building housed offices, offices of federal agencies like Social Security, Veterans Affairs, and Housing and Urban Development, as well as a federal credit union and an Army recruiting office. There was also a daycare, America's Kids. None of those people went to war; they went to work, and so they weren't dressed for battle. They were. They were dressed in their, you know, in their work gear, and、uh, they couldn't protect themselves. Many of their desks, you know, were up against a glass wall that was built in the '70s for solar heat, and that same glass would be what would kill them.、Um, the daycare on the second floor, which is meant as an amenity to federal employees,、uh, you know, 16 children were killed. A dad who had taken, who just been assigned here, had taken his, brought his family to the Army recruiting office. Lost his little daughter. If you visit the Oklahoma City Memorial and Museum website, there's a page with photos of all those who lost their lives that day, from Lucio Alamon Jr. to Colton Wade Smith to Joanne Wittenberg. It's an amazingly tragic collection that puts a name and a face on those 168 who died. 25 years later, in 2020, FBI Director Christopher Wray told Congress that the FBI had more than a thousand active domestic terrorism investigations. That investigations were open in every state. "Quote: This threat is real, and it affects communities big and small." And then this year, everybody in this way, this way. In 2021, an unruly gaggle of domestic extremists. Violently attacked another federal building, except this time it was the United States Capitol. Like I said, 
America has a problem. And that problem is the threat of violence from within. So, who is domestic violent extremism? I'm Sean Morrow, and this is Who Is, the podcast from Now This, where we examine power by looking at the people who have it. This is an episode that we knew we wanted to do, but we weren't even sure what to call it. Domestic terror, uh, a well-regulated militia. Really, we still aren't sure, and that's part of the problem. We don't know what to call these people, and we don't really know how to talk about these incidents. And that uncertainty is something we're going to get into on this episode, because today we're not talking about violent extremists who are motivated by international events or the consequences of American foreign policy. Today, we're talking about people who may see themselves as patriots. So let's get back to Oklahoma City. Hi, I'm Carrie Watkins, the executive director of the Oklahoma City National Memorial and Museum. For about 25 years, she's been working to translate the experience of this event into something that can not only memorialize the people who died, but something that can make meaning out of tragedy, out of terrorism. History is hard. And when you look at history, here we, we, you know, we had the Tulsa race massacre. We had the Oklahoma City bombing. We, we've had some tough moments in our state's history. We've had the Native Americans... Our history is tough. I mean, it's, it's not. There's, there's good moments in it, but there's some really tough moments, too. Before Timothy McVeigh bombed the Alfred P. Murrah building in 1995, there was the Tulsa massacre in 1921. With the blessing of city authorities, a white mob killed several dozen people and injured hundreds. A neighborhood known as Black Wall Street was burned to the ground. That's history we don't talk about. I grew up 17 miles from the, the site of the Tulsa race massacre. I, mean, I, I gr- literally grew up 20 within 20 minutes of that site. I was a college graduate, and I was in my late 20s when I learned of that story. Uh, my kids got about five minutes of that story in their history classes. A Tulsa race massacre museum is currently being built. It's a similar project to what Carrie Watkins has been working on in Oklahoma City for a quarter century. We have to be willing to teach history in its entirety. It's like like teaching the Bible in Sunday school class. I mean, you can't just pick out the verses you like. You've got to teach the good, the bad, and the the hard stuff. And we're all going to be better students and better learners if we know where, where we're coming from. And we, we have to be willing to do that. If we, if we want to save our country and protect our democracy, we have to figure out how to break down some of these walls. And when it comes to the Oklahoma City bombing, dealing with history in its entirety involves contending with Timothy McVeigh. Well, I think um, understanding the mindset of a terrorist is important. Um, mob violence, extremism, domestic terrorism... Um, we can't let those people penetrate our society in a way where they are the norm. For us in the museum, we, we felt like we had to show the story of McVeigh. What makes someone that way? And so I, I just think for us, we wanted to make sure people recognized that he was a normal, everyday American citizen. Timothy McVeigh was born in upstate New York, a middle child with two sisters. According to the Washington Post, he surprised teachers when high test scores won him scholarships. Teachers had remembered a young man who, when other students doodled, 
drew guns. McVeigh joined the army and served in the Gulf War. He was awarded some medals and ultimately got an honorable discharge after failing a physical fitness test to become a Green Beret. What would be the catalyst that turned McVeigh, a veteran, into a terrorist who attacked his own country? Apparently, two incidents. Ruby Ridge and Waco. In August 1982, federal agents and a survivalist, Randy Weaver, got into a shootout in Idaho. One U.S. Marshal was killed, and so were Weaver's wife and son. Then, on April 19, 1993, two years before the Oklahoma City bombing, Waco happened. A 51-day standoff between federal agents and heavily armed members of a cult, the Branch Davidians. It's complicated, but after a brief climax of violence and a fire of unclear origin, nearly 100 people died, including 25 children. McVeigh was at the Waco siege as an observer and a protester. He sold bumper stickers. Yeah, the guy went to an armed standoff between the federal government and cult members to sell merch. Waco began with a Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms investigation. And the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms had an office in the Alfred P. Murrah building. Although, obviously, why a guy from New York decided to blow up a building in Oklahoma after a siege in Texas makes absolutely no sense. The January 6th insurrection and the Oklahoma City bombing were attacks on the federal government. And so maybe they're technically different from events like the Tulsa massacre, or the Tree of Life synagogue shooting, or the El Paso shooting, or the Charleston church shooting. The people inside the Capitol on January 6th were our democratically elected representatives and their staffers and administrative staff. And like the office workers who died in the Oklahoma City bombing, they were our neighbors, our friends, and our families. In case you forgot, we still live in a representative democracy. Timothy McVeigh was executed by the federal government on June 11th, 2001. Here's what then-President George W. Bush had to say about it. This morning, the United States of America carried out the severest sentence for the gravest of crimes. The victims of the Oklahoma City bombing have been given not vengeance, but justice. Today, every living person who was hurt by the evil done in Oklahoma City can rest in the knowledge that there has been a reckoning. Under the laws of our country, the matter is concluded. But as we saw in January of this year, the matter is nowhere near concluded. I'm Rudabe Kishi. I'm Director of Research and Innovation at ACLUD. That's the Armed Conflict Location and Event Data Project. We are a research entity. We're not an advocacy organization. We aren't um, partisan. We are data collectors, and we make that available for whoever wants to use the data. ACLED previously collected data in parts of the world where, rightly or wrongly, political violence is more commonly thought to occur. But now they're documenting these events in the United States, which means these events are happening in the United States. We're an event-based data set, so that means that in a spreadsheet, each line in an Excel spreadsheet refers to an event or an incident, if you will, which means an engagement, and it happens on a certain day, and it's at a certain location, and we will code the coordinates of that location and, you know, the state and city it happened in. And uh, we will include the actors that were involved. We call them actors, but that would be the groups or, you know, whether it's police forces, whether it's um, a group like the Proud Boys, we will name those specific groups. 
we code all the, these different actors um, in the data. Uh, I, I will say that we try to include in the data the most objective parts of an incident. So that would be whether or not, let's say, a certain group showed up somewhere and engaged in something. We see things like categorization of a group as right or left wing or far right or fascist or what have you. These types of descriptors is a bit more subjective. And so you will see it in our analysis. And that's kind of the work that we do using ACLA data as users with our like analysis hat on, if you will. Kishi is making a really important point. A lot of these categories are subjective. It's like we talked about earlier. It's hard to know what exactly to call this stuff. But here are some real numbers. ACLED tracked 148 right-wing armed groups and militarized social movements active in the U.S. last year. Over 2,350 right-wing demonstrations took place across more than 1,070 locations in all 50 states. And the states that saw the most right-wing demonstrations might surprise you. California, Florida, New York, Pennsylvania, and Texas. You may have heard of groups like the Proud Boys, Oath Keepers, or Three Percenters, but ACLED is tracking 148 groups. That's a lot of groups. I think it's important to remember that the discussion around these militarized social movements goes far beyond those big names that we all know. We track 148 different groups and we frankly add more regularly. And so I think that's one of the biggest takeaways we've noticed is that there's so many more groups than, than we are talking about, which also points to how fragmented the right is. Beyond these armed groups, there's also quite a large population that's quite mobilized that isn't necessarily formally part of some of these named groups. And so I think it's, um, it, there's always this tendency by, you know, most of us to kind of think, talk about, you know, the right in quotes, but it's important to remember that they're really not a monolith. It's quite um, a, a fragmented movement. Remember, Timothy McVeigh, the man who committed the deadliest act of domestic terrorism in American history, wasn't affiliated with any particular group, although he did pal around with the Michigan militia for a while. He was just some guy. Just in case you're a both-sizer, here are some more numbers. As of February 2021, ACLED recorded more than 10,330 demonstrations associated with the Black Lives Matter movement across more than 2,730 locations in all 50 states. Quote, the vast majority of these events, 94%, involved no violent or destructive activity. End quote. Here's another piece of ACLED data. Quote, while the specter of Antifa looms large in the public imagination, Violent activities associated with this non-centralized movement have been minimal, end quote. That's from October 2020. We asked Kishi, based on the data she's measured and analyzed, if, by and large, the violent threat in the United States is primarily coming from the fragmented group that is the political right. I do think that's fair to say. Don't believe it? Download the data for yourself. It's available at acleddata.com. ACLEDdata.com. We'll be back after this. I'm Sean Morrow, and this is Who Is. Today, we're looking at domestic violent extremism in the United States. I want to bring in a new voice, a big picture voice, who has argued that America has something to learn from 
Germany? I'm perfectly aware that normal people who might have been nice to their families and dogs uh, became fascists and murderers. So I think it's very important to undemonize the idea of fascism and remember that it is possible, probably, anywhere. That's Susan Niemann, a philosopher and author of many books, among them Learning from the Germans, Race and the Memory of Evil. So what can we learn from the Germans? Well, at the beginning of the episode, we talked about how America has this problem with homegrown domestic terrorism. That from attacks on federal buildings to attacks carried out, well, anywhere, domestic terrorism and domestic violent extremism represent a fundamental hostility to the idea of America itself as it aspires to be. To fix this problem, and in order to move forward as a society, Susan Neiman argues that, like Germany, America has to reckon with its own history of horror. The Germans were reluctant to uh, acknowledge history, right? It's a natural move. We don't want to see ourselves as perpetrators. We would much rather see ourselves as heroes. You know, we need to let that sink in for a while. Even the Nazis saw themselves as victims and not as criminals. And so why shouldn't Americans feel the same way, especially since we have been fed uh, from childhood a story about American exceptionalism and why this is the greatest country on earth? The comparison isn't between slavery and the Nazis. It's about two countries facing down tough history that's fucking up the present in both cases. Germany is trying, and yeah, they definitely haven't gotten there yet, but America is sort of like cramming for an exam or consistently writing a podcast the weekend before it airs. So what has Germany done that America hasn't? Here's Susan Neiman. Germans like long compound words. The one that I use is Vergangenheitsaufarbeitung, uh, which I translate as working off the past or working through the past. And it refers to a, a very complex and um, multi-layered effort. Obviously, justice is involved. If people who committed crimes are still around, they should be brought to justice. It involves changing historical narratives. And the changes take place in many ways. They need to take place in school books, but they also, and in universities, of course, but they also need to take place in popular culture. They need to take place in iconography and the kinds of statues and markers and memorials that we walk by on our way to the market. And it needs to be a, a very broad and public effort. Neiman began to see encouraging signs that this process was beginning in America a few years ago. When President Obama gave the eulogy for the nine churchgoers who had been murdered in Charleston, as I watched his speech, which was one of the greatest speeches he ever gave, I felt that it was the first time that America was really doing what the Germans had done. Namely, it, it was the first time that anyone connected the violence of the present, the murder of those nine people, with our ignorance and repression of the violence of the past. Once the eulogies have been delivered, once the TV cameras move on, 
to go back to business as usual. Right. That's what we so often do. To avoid uncomfortable truths about the prejudice that still infects our society. To settle for symbolic gestures without following up with the hard work of more lasting change. That's how we lose our way again. History can't be a sword to justify injustice or a shield against progress, but must be a manual for how to avoid repeating the mistakes of the past, how to break the cycle, a roadway toward a better world. What surprises a lot of people and took me a long time to grasp is that in the first few decades in West Germany, people thought of themselves as the worst victims of the war. Uh, they said, well, they're, they'd lost the war, their cities were in uh, ruins and ashes, they're, they'd lost 7 million people, their men, if they'd survived, were in POW camps or wounded, they were hungry, and on top of this, uh, the damn Yankees wanted to uh, convince them that it was their fault that the war had happened at all. What the Germans did, and it took, a very, it took 40 years for the West Germans to do this, was to make a further move and to say, yes, we did suffer. We suffered quite a lot, but other people suffered more and their suffering was our fault. That is a move that no other country besides Germany has actually made. Germany, of course, still hasn't fixed their problem. Last year, a far-right domestic extremist went on a shooting spree at two hookah bars and killed 10 people. But the United States has faced its history even less. And the consequences of that are visible in the impacts of some of the measures America has taken to address extremism at home. We'll be back after this. I'm Sean Morrow, and this is Who Is. Today, we're looking at domestic violent extremism. We talked earlier about how Timothy McVeigh was executed, which at the time was somewhat rare. Really rare. It was the first federal execution since 1963. And Democrats and Republicans came together to ensure McVeigh was punished. Here's President Bill Clinton on April 24th, 1996, a year and five days after the Oklahoma City bombing. I also would point out that presidents can advocate and the executive branch can enforce the laws, but this would not have happened but for the remarkable convergence of Republicans and Democrats in the Congress. This is a good day because our police officers are now going to be better prepared to stop terrorists, our prosecutors better prepared to punish them, our people being better protected from their designs. A bipartisan effort to do something about domestic violent extremism? Sounds pretty good, right? It was called the Anti-Terrorism and Effective Death Penalty Act of 1996, or EDPA. So what did EDPA do? Well, the Anti-Terrorism and Effective Death Penalty Act, or EDPA as we call it, 
is a law that was passed in 1996 that was essentially designed to tie the hands of judges and prevent them from intervening in criminal appeals and immigration cases. That's Alina Das, a professor at NYU Law, where she co-teaches and co-directs the Immigrant Rights Clinic. In criminal appeals, including death penalty cases, EDPA made it harder for courts to correct wrongful convictions and unlawful sentencing. And in immigration cases, it created a kind of fast track to mandatory detention and deportation that prevents immigration judges from permitting immigrants to remain in the U.S. in light of factors like hardship or community ties. Along with other legislation that was passed in 1996, EDPA has resulted in millions of people getting deported from the U.S. without their individual circumstances being considered. But wait, Bill Clinton said something different. So EDPA really came about during the 1990s at a time when the country was still very much in the thick of the war on drugs and tough on crime policies uh, that were really being pushed by both parties. And so in 1995, when a U.S. citizen and white supremacist, Timothy McVeigh, bombed a federal building in Oklahoma City, People demanded justice, and Congress really rushed to deliver it with the most punitive and sweeping response possible. And rather than focusing on rooting out white supremacy, uh, all the tough-on-crime, law-and-order politicians threw together a wish list of so-called criminal and immigration legal reforms, and they scrambled to put it into a legislative package um, that they could rush to pass by the one-year anniversary of the Oklahoma City bombing. So, yes, the bill was meant to, literally and symbolically, punish Timothy McVeigh and prevent domestic violent extremism and domestic terrorism. As it would turn out, the legislation really decimated communities of color. People who were convicted by racially biased prosecutions couldn't get a new trial, and longtime green card holders became subject to mandatory deportation and detention based on old convictions, like literally overnight because of the legislation. Many legislators didn't even know what they were signing on to. Um, They supported the legislation and then expressed surprise when they saw the way communities of color were affected. Yeah, like, what the hell? Do you not read a bill before signing it? And by the way, EDPA isn't the only law like this. So EDPA was really a reaction to the Oklahoma City bombing. And as we've seen, it was a reaction that had terrible consequences for communities of color. Similarly, the Patriot Act was a response to another terrorist attack um, by during 9-11. And the Patriot Act similarly resulted in communities of color being surveilled, um, being targeted and harmed. And I think one of the things that's that's really important when you think about legislation like EDPA and the Patriot Act, when you think about the Homeland Security Act, Real ID Act, all of these reactions to acts of terrorism, acts of uncertainty um, with respect to people's safety and security, The reactions always end up diminishing the very protections and rights that many Americans believe make the country a country of freedom, make the country as desirable as it is to be in. Um, We live in a country that depends on checks and balances, that 
is designed to make sure that one branch of government won't be overly powerful, will not be able to trample on the rights of, of people living in this country without there being review or, or another branch of government to step in. Yet laws like the Patriot Act, like EDPA, tend to remove those checks and balances, and they give the federal government and the executive branch incredible power to do terrible things. And so when the people in those positions choose to use those tools against communities of color, which is traditionally and historically what has always been done, uh, suddenly those communities don't have courts to turn to. They aren't able to go um, through the American system and be able to rely on our system of justice the way it was intended. And so um, we're, we're really harming all of our rights um, when we decide to embrace legislation like the Patriot Act, um, like EDPA, that have really um, consolidated way too much power uh, in one branch of government. At the top of this episode, I told you about how in 2020, the FBI recorded the deadliest year for domestic terrorism since the Oklahoma City bombing, with a thousand active domestic terrorism investigations in every state. Something isn't working. I want to go back to January 6th. The insurrection. Isn't it weird how casually we say that now? The domestic terror we all watched unfold live on television. It was a mob and it was a surprise, or at least the Capitol Police were surprised. What's important is that it could have been a lot worse. You probably saw photos or news stories about guys with zip ties. They had plans, and those plans didn't just involve taking selfies in Nancy Pelosi's office. I would say it was a failed fascist insurrection. Uh, it had all the hallmarks of fascism. First of all, disdain for de democratic processes and a willingness to use violence to overturn them. Racism, the idea that only one group of people is genuinely part of us or part of the nation and everybody else is, uh, is not a real American, as the so-called birther movement claimed of President Obama. The idea that you can override courts and judicial structures. The idea that the media is the enemy of the people. All of those things are fascist tropes. January 6th was especially meaningful for Carrie Watkins, who has spent a good part of her life reckoning with domestic violent extremism. I would like to say here in Oklahoma, we're sensitive to what domestic terrorism can do to your own hometown, your own, your own state. But I was taken back. I was breathless, frankly, and so saddened to see the Oklahoma state flag carried across that security line, not once, but a couple of times by Oklahomans who were there protesting, absolutely had the right to protest, um, had no, no problem with them being up there to protest. Uh, but to see an Oklahoma flag or a Confederate flag fly in the United States Capitol, um, I mean, the Oklahoma flag got me. And then the Confederate flag was just like the dagger. Uh, like, our people in this state know terrorism. We've seen it firsthand. We've seen the ills of it. We've seen the very worst. And we've also seen the very best of what people can come together. And so, you know, I, I, I text my kids that day and said, don't ever get comfortable with watching these pictures. This is not right. 
And you guys have to make, you have to be the difference makers. You have to be the generation that keeps moving us forward. Moving Forward is a multi-generational project. Here's Susan Neiman. I think it's a multi-generational project because each generation has to come to terms with this history on its own and it will invariably look somewhat different. So one lesson that I have learned from the Germans dealing with the Nazi period is this stuff is really hard. We do not want to see ourselves as perpetrators. We don't want to see our ancestors as perpetrators. And there will be a backlash for anyone who tries to do it, which I think should bring hope to activists in America today who are trying to um, help us face up to our past. But I also have learned that it's possible. That is, it's hard even if your past was a Nazi, which some people take to be an emblem of absolute evil. I would say the Nazis were evil, but I, I don't like the way they sometimes function as a symbol because I think they have functioned as a symbol in many countries to avoid looking at our own evils of racism and colonialism. We can all agree that what the Nazis did was evil and point towards them. It's, uh, it's harder to look at slightly more subtle forms of evil, although when you actually look closely at what was done to African-Americans in this country, I think, uh, you know, there's not a lot of room for subtlety. It was as brutal as brutality gets. In some ways, it feels almost more difficult to address these subtler forms of evil, from the long legacy of slavery and racism in the United States to incidents like the Oklahoma City bombing. Like we talked about at the beginning of this episode, what do we even call this stuff? It feels as if we don't have the right words. But when it comes to white supremacy, at least, Alina Das has some ideas. In order to address acts of terrorism, it's important to recognize the root causes and the motivations of those acts. So in the case of white supremacy, we know that there are groups of people within the U.S. who are sickened by the idea of equal rights, who thrive on the notion and the conspiracy theories that somehow recognizing equality uh, among uh, different groups of people of color will somehow diminish their rights. And so in order to combat that, I think the first thing that communities need to do is to really support um, uh, more accountability and transparency. So it, it's really about understanding the root causes of white supremacy. It's about education uh, in communities. Um, it's about tackling things like segregation um, and the way in which it's too easy for communities to be isolated from each other um, and many of the kind of mythologies around um, white supremacy to flourish. And I think that kind of level of accountability where you can take a transformative justice approach where acts of white supremacy can be, um, can be addressed early on, I think can be really powerful. Where do we even start? I'm not entirely convinced that a massive truth and reconciliation project will get us there, or that history holds all the answers. 
When you look at Oklahoma City or the January 6th insurrection, these were Americans attacking America. But Americans attacking America is also the Tulsa race massacre. It's also the Tree of Life synagogue shooting and the Charleston church shooting. All of these were acts of domestic terrorism. And we need to see them somehow as part of the same whole. It's our hard history and our tough present. And every time this happens, we lose more and more. And we've already lost a lot. Here's Carrie Watkins. I think we we need to look at with each attack, we're giving up freedoms that some of these same people are fighting for. The insurrectionists, the the militias, the the the, the groups, the QAnons, the, the 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 groups who are starting these incidents around the country. They say they want these freedoms, they want this you know liberty, they want all this patriotic stuff. Well, by by the crimes they're committing, they're destroying that for all of us. And we lost a lot 26 years ago. And I think people don't realize what we lost. For the young kids who weren't born in 95, but were born in 2001, they think that's all we lost on 9-11. We lost a lot before 9-11. We lost a lot on April 19th. We lost more on 9-11. And guess what? We're going to lose more because of what happened January 6th. The problem of domestic violent extremism didn't begin with the Trump administration, and it damn sure didn't end when Biden was inaugurated in January. Domestic violent extremism has been a problem in America for a long time, and for some Americans, it's a reality of life here. What are we going to do about it? This might be profoundly unsatisfying, but I'm not sure. What I do know is that we have to start somewhere even if that's just in conversations with our families, our friends, our neighbors, and our communities. Because if we don't, next time could be a whole lot worse than January 6th. On the next episode of Who Is, we're going to look at the people who are supposed to be protecting us. Well, more accurately, the people who protect the people who are supposed to be protecting us. Next Tuesday, it's Who Is Police Unions. A sincere thank you to our guests, Alina Das, a professor of clinical law at NYU Law, where she co-teaches and co-directs the Immigrant Rights Clinic. Ruta Bakishi, the research director of the Armed Conflict Location and Event Data Project. Susan Neiman, a philosopher, public intellectual, and author of many books. Her most recent work, Learning from the Germans, Race and the Memory of Evil, was published in 2019. And Carrie Watkins, the first employee and current executive director of the Oklahoma City National Memorial and Museum. This has been Who Is, a podcast from Now This. I'm Sean Morrow, your host. Michael McDowell is our producer. Laura Tillman is our associate producer. Mona Hassan is our writer. Editing and mixing by Jordan Balaber. Production support from Pedro Alvira, Rob Baynard, and Amanda Earle. Our executive producers are Nancy Hahn, Brett Kushner, Sarah Frank, and Mangesh Hadakuder. And now this, Tina Exaros is our chief content officer, and Nathan Stephanopoulos is our president. Special thanks to Christopher Sebastian Parker. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoy the show, please don't forget to rate, subscribe, and hey, why not? Tell your friends. If you have an idea for somebody we should cover from an organization to a person to an industry, feel free to hit me up on Twitter at SNMRRW. I'd love to hear your ideas. Please rate us nicely. 